some abuse is dangerously obvious, while other types of abuse creep into our family DNA in covert ways. Keeping family secrets, intimidation, the silent treatment, and cyberbullying are just a few examples of the many forms of abuse with troubling outcomes. Often victims ask, why did this happen to me? Or what can I do? While abusers will excuse their behavior asking, why do you make me do this? Victims and abusers can rewrite their stories, improve their relationships, and break the cycle for their future generations. In Christine Hammond's latest book, Abuse Exposed, you will learn the wide range of types of abuse, both overt and covert, the generational links to abuse, what to do before, during, and after abuse, how to confront your abuser, how to talk to a victim of rape, finding forgiveness despite the pain, how to rewrite your story and avoid future problems, and much, much more. Look for Christine Hammond's latest book, Abuse Exposed, now available on Amazon. This is Understanding Today's Narcissist, brought to you in part by PsychCentral.com. And now, here's your host, Christine Hammond. Hi, welcome back. I'm so glad that you are able to hear and excited for you to actually hear Dr. Nay today. She is a wonderful person that I've had the privilege of getting to know just recently. And she has quite the interesting story of dealing with a narcissist and having been married to one for many years. And I'm not going to like jump to the punchline. I'm going to let her do that and do some of the talking and kind of share some of her journey with you. And we're actually going to do several of these podcasts with her because she has so much wonderful information to be able to share with you. But the very first one in this series is all about her and it is her story. So Dr. Nay, I'm going to let you go for it. Oh, thanks, Christine. And thank you for having me on today. Yeah. So my story is definitely, as they say, one for the movies, I guess. Yes. Literally. (laughs) Right. right? Literally. Right. right. So I am today a licensed marriage and family therapist and have my doctorate in somatic psychotherapy, which are really just a fancy title to say that I use the body in my um, therapeutic encounter with my patients. But my journey started a long time ago. So I am 54, but I was raised in Brooklyn in the 60s and 70s by a single mother who was fascinated with psychology. And she was always reading about Freud and Jung. And she would always say to me on the dinner table every night, I'm 18, do you think it's nature or nurture that shapes us? And I'd say, mom, I'm 10. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So those seeds were planted in me, those psychology seeds as as a very young girl. And growing up poor in Brooklyn, uh, my parents really were not financially resourced. And so after uh, much struggle about what to do and how to support myself, I decided to become a model in New York City. Mm-hmm. And that's a tough gig. Very <laughs> tough gig. Yeah. If you don't have thick skin, don't do it. Right. But luckily, I grew up in Brooklyn and I did and I needed to make money. I mean, that was the, my financial reality. So I was modeling and living in the city and having fun. And going to the Hamptons on the weekend, because that's what you do when you live in New York City and it's hot as hell in the summer. Right. 
And I would say the summer of 1989. Yeah, I, I think I'm 21, 22, 22 at this time. I go to a party and I meet my ex-husband, Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street. Mm, yes. Yes. So now at 22, I was clueless. I was naive. He was having a party. I left because I thought actually the people at the party were acting very strange. But I guess he saw me and became obsessed with me and pursued me. And we got married for eight years and had a very tumultuous marriage because he was a severe drug addict. Right. And very emotionally abusive. And then lucky for me, though, he did get arrested. Right. So I was able to leave him because he told me the only way I could leave him while we were married was in a body bag. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I was very afraid of him. And so luckily, like I said, he did get arrested. He had an ankle bracelet and then I decided to leave him. And so I left him and then I took my two beautiful children, Carter and Chandler. My daughter's now a therapist. And yeah, and we came to California and we built a new life. And then I decided at 39 to go back to school because therapy had helped me so much when I was married to Jordan, because after I met him, after six months of being with him, I put myself right into therapy 30 years ago. I mean, people weren't even really going to therapy 30 years ago. Nor were they really talking about this either. No, they weren't talking about it. But again, I think because I was raised by my mom, who was so interested in psychology, I was open to that idea 30 years ago and it saved my life. So I figured, why don't I do something as I get older that can help people? And so that's what I ended up doing. And I love my work. That's really great. And so, uh, you know, I want to talk a little bit because I know some of the people that are listening are also in situations in which they feel like they've been threatened. Um, Mm -hmm. They're dealing with a very narcissistic spouse who is making it all about them. Um, They feel very torn as to what to do, especially if there's children involved. And so can you talk a little bit about how you were in that situation and what, mm-hmm. what advice are you offering now to people sure. having had a different perspective on yeah. it? Yeah, sure. You know, and I think what makes me good at my job is of course that horrific experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know that at the time. Right. But it was when you're dealing with someone who's completely self-absorbed, callous, entitled, And they really just look at you really as another prop Mm -hmm. to propel their positive image. You're really not a person, so they can't have empathy. And so if you find yourself in this situation, the first thing is don't judge yourself. Because these sorts of people, that doesn't mean you're codependent. It doesn't mean you're this or you enable them. No matter who you are. If someone has such serious personality pathology, you don't stand a chance. Right. So the first thing is you have to accept it and not judge yourself and then get highly educated about it and not really as a way to manage it or stay in the relationship, but just to know the beast that you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. I say you have to name it to tame it. And then there are, yeah, there are three ways that women usually leave. And it is usually women that get in these situations. Uh, They actually, they really fear their, their safety or their children's safety. Mm -hmm. 
And that really can be a wake up call for women. Some women, you know, the partner has just been so abusive and over, over time that they can emotionally detach. Mm-hmm. And that's another way that they're, they're able to leave. And another way that women are really able to leave is that I think when we live with someone like that, they demand so much attention and time because they're really like four-year-olds running around in an adult body. Right. So if you can find a way to, because they really will break down your personal strengths to keep you trapped in the relationship. But if you can find a way to go back to school, to get a job, to become part of a community that can support you and build your self-esteem and self-worth back up, you will be able to leave. Right. And, and those are the three ways that, that people do that women do end up leaving. Yeah, that's great advice. And I I can't help but think like you had a bit of a double whammy in all of this, like first in the modeling industry, right? Which is right. Um, very much kind of like demeans you or makes your worth all be about your appearance. Yes. And then being married to somebody like the Wolf of Wall Street, who, who also is valuing obviously appearance over everything else. Yes, 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 I did. I did have a double whammy. And, um, you know, just like everything, it's it's a double-edged sword. It's a paradox. I found that as I've gotten older. And so, of course, there was some like perks to being a young, pretty girl, right? right. But the bad side of it is that you, you might fall into the hands of someone who really doesn't care about you. Mm-hmm. And I think that when you have empathy and you're a relatively normal person, I mean, who's we're all on a spectrum, you don't, it's very, it was very hard for me at that point in my life to wrap my head around the fact that he didn't have empathy for me. Mm-hmm. He, he couldn't put himself, himself in my shoes. And so when, you know, he was such a severe drug addict, I mean, I'd come home to him doing something as crazy as like cutting up, cutting open the furniture, you know, to find drugs. Right. And so how do you reason with somebody like that? And yeah, it was a double whammy because he didn't see me as a person. He saw me as a utility belt. Yeah. To watch his kids, to keep a beautiful home, to throw beautiful parties, to show up in the right outfit. And that was really it. Right. Right. And I was good at that. I was good at that. Right. But it's also destroying to your self-esteem along the way. Oh, destroying, destroying. And, you know, I always say this. We all have shame at the end of the day. And I know I did as a neglected child. I wasn't abused. I was more neglected. And so I was addicted to perfection to overcome my shame. Mm. And he was addicted to power to overcome his shame. So we were a perfect couple in that way. And when you're married to somebody like that, you're like, you think like, oh, if I just look better or if I dress better or if this dinner party goes perfectly, or if I just can meet every single one of his needs, it'll be okay. And that's what kept me on that treadmill. And of course, perfection is an unrealistic expectation. And um, yeah, it just, it didn't work out and nearly almost killed me. Because, you know, he did um, when I finally asked him to get sober, he did kick me down the stairs and drive my daughter and I into a garage door. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So don't try to mold and bend yourself for this type of person. Right. Because their needs are insatiable. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, they really are. But Mm -hmm. I also like what you say, like the awareness that you have of not only yourself, right? And what what you were really seeking out in that kind of a relationship, but also an awareness of what he too was seeking out in that type of a relationship as well. Mm -hmm. So so it works both ways, right? Like like you met each other's dysfunctional needs. Yes. Completely, completely. And, you know, because I grew up in Brooklyn with a single mother and um, we weren't very well financially resourced, I mean, a lot of love, but um, I really thought that Jordan was going to protect me and keep me safe. Mm -hmm. So, but it was the most dangerous place to be. So I offer that to people in that, you know, my work was to really understand that that was really my job Mm -hmm. to do that. You know, I think I, cause my, I didn't have a great father. I was that, that piece of like a protective piece was missing. Mm-hmm. And I thought, cause he was so wealthy and powerful. He could offer me that, but, um, not so much. No, <laughs> it was actually the opposite. Exactly. So I'm sure we have some listeners that are kind of curious who have seen the movie before, yes. like what kind of involvement did you have in, in the development of the movie? So, okay. This is, this is interesting. So um, Jordan actually wrote a book first. Mm-hmm. So he wrote the book. I can't remember the exact year, but he wrote a book first and I read the book and I like threw it and cried on the bed for five hours. I was and I called him up. I was like, how could you write this? This isn't even true. I never threw water in your face. I didn't do this. And he was like, well, I did it for us. And I'm like, no, you didn't. I'm married. I live in a house. I'm very happy. But again, you know, right. He was exploiting my life. That was a Greek tragedy that I spent 25 years in therapy getting over for his perusal. Right. Okay. Because there's no, we're just a means to their end. Right. Okay. So then I go back to school to be a licensed marriage and family therapist. And as I'm, and I, and I had breast cancer too in 2007. Mm. So I'm sorry. Yeah. And that was actually when he was, all of this was happening about the movie and the, and all this. And so I really was not really that focused on that. And then he said to me, they're going to make a movie. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Okay. And I was, I was angry and, and all these different feelings that I had, but I just said, you know what? There's nothing I can do. This is bigger than me. And I have to surrender. And, and I did. And so I didn't have any creative input. I didn't make any money. I left my marriage without taking any money because it was all blood money. And, but I did write my master's thesis about my time with him. And I compared my life with him to the myth of Persephone. Mm. And so I spoke all about archetypal themes, about greed and betrayal and loss of self, and just said how these things have been going on since the beginning of time. So Martin Scorsese did not reach out to me, but I had sent my thesis to his his agent, I think. And so then one day Jordan said to me, you know, they want to use your name for the movie. I said, they can't use my name. He goes, why? I said, I have make no money. I have no creative input. And no, they can't right. use my name. Right. And so... That made Martin Scorsese's office get scared. And so they called me oh. and they said, so they, I, I'm, it was a Sunday. I was in the pool and I came out and they said, hi, this is Emma from Martin Scorsese's office. I said, it's about time you called me. I said, you're going to make a movie about my life and not ask me anything. Mm-hmm. And she said, yes, well, I heard you. I'm sorry, but I know you're not going to use your name. And I said, no. And I said, but I'm not going to sue you. That's not how I make my money. I realize this is bigger than me. I said, but 
if you portray me in a way that my children, like it really affects them, we'll have a problem. Right. And she, because that's really who I cared about. Right. And so she said, okay, uh, Margo, can you, will you meet with Margo to get your accent? Because anybody, one of the listeners can hear my ridiculous <laughs> accent. And so I met her. She was 22, the age I was when I met my ex-husband. She was lovely. They taped my accent. And um, when I came downstairs, she said, you don't look from, you're like, you're from Brooklyn. I said, how the fuck would you know? <laughs> so that set the tone. That but she it. was lovely. Yeah, I just wanted her to get a taste. And she was lovely. And we had a great time. And then that was it. They made the movie. Okay. So it really didn't have anything to do with you or your story or your journey. And it was just part of his recreation, I guess, would be the best way of saying it. Yes, yes, Mm -hmm. yes, yes. And also somebody like this really wants to control the narrative. (laughs) Yes. Right. So he really got to control the narrative. And I always say the movie and the book were like the ultimate form of gaslighting. Right. Which I think is the point that we're trying to make, right? That that right. if at some point in time, like you look back on it, it's not like the narcissist is ever going to walk away and say, oh, you know, I can see what's happened from your point of view. They're going to continue <laughs> on with their own narrative oh, that yeah. is so far from the truth of what actually happened. Right, yeah. right. No, that's, that's such, I mean, that's such a good point. And yeah, he just and and this is a really important issue, too, that I want to speak about is that after my ex-husband got sober, we were together for a year before I left him. And one of the reasons why I really left him was I tried to explain to him over sushi one night how hard it had been for me, our marriage, mm-hmm. when he was addicted to drugs and how abusive he was. And he looked at me and said, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> and inside of me. Now, I didn't know the word callous. I didn't know anything. Right. Right. But inside of me, something turned. And so listen to that turn. Mm -hmm. You know, we're trying to offer you words and and apply story to what you're feeling right now. Mm -hmm. But I now know that was complete callousness. Right. Right. So listen to your gut. Listen to that turn. Don't ignore those internal signs. Right. Good. I love that. Okay. So for our last few minutes, what I want to do is just give you a chance, like just to say something to someone who might be in the middle of this and then also share how people can reach out to you if they would like to reach out to you. Sure. So if you are in the middle of an abusive relationship, there are so many resources right now that you can reach out to. First of all, get a therapist that knows about it, that can help you. And um, there's a beautiful uh, website, domesticshelter.org, that I really believe in. And reach out to people, talk about it, talk to your doctors, talk to your therapist, talk to your friends, because the more you talk about it, the more people know, the more support, support you'll get to leave. Don't, don't feel any shame. It happens to the best of us. And if you have any questions, you can reach me at nadinemacaluso.com or my Instagram where I post daily at Dr. Nay or Nadine Macaluso. Thanks, Christine. Thank you so much. I so enjoyed having you. This is part one of our three-part series talking to Dr. Nay. Thanks for listening to Understanding Today's Narcissist with Christine Hammond. Brought to you in part by psychcentral.com. For more information, 
Visit growwithchristine.com. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.